isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all, to feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Last year, when Doomsday Watch launched, we saw the US Capitol building under siege. China was increasingly strident under President Xi's authoritarian lead, and Western forces were running from Afghanistan, humiliated. As our first season came to an end and winter set in, there was a sense we were a world on the brink. Then suddenly, on February the 24th, our worst fears were confirmed. Sunrise and sirens. The Russian military were getting closer. Now, seven months into the largest land war in Europe since World War II, Russian forces lie scattered. Putin's military machine has been humiliated and a former comedian, Volodymyr Zelensky, now president of Ukraine, is rightly spoken of with the same reverence as Winston Churchill. Meet them. That is, you know, a very sensitive moment with our army, the life combat. Certainly in Europe, Russia's war has changed everything. Germany has had its Seiten vendor. We're supplying Ukraine with increasingly powerful weapons. Ever tougher sanctions are being imposed on Russia's economy. The years of laundering Kremlin stooges cash and educating their kids in our private schools now seem, well, unwise. Yet, despite these changes, the dangers still escalate. In response, NATO seems to have found its backbone. But do we really have the stomach for this fight? On February the 24th, 2022, Vladimir Putin killed off the international rules-based order. So what's next? Welcome back to Doomsday Watch and into the Age of Anarchy. I'm Arthur Snell. I was a diplomat in some of the most troubled places on planet Earth. And now I'm here to investigate the threats of today and warn you about the dangers of tomorrow. This is Doomsday Watch. It's a battle between democracy and authoritarianism. The global majority disorders. The dragon's back. If you've been listening to Doomsday Watch from the start, you'll know that since February, we've been bringing you war bulletins on the news and consequences of Russia's war in Ukraine. From the rising tension before the invasion to the highs of Ukraine's dramatic pushback against Russian forces, we've heard regularly from Ukrainian journalist Romeo Kokriatsky. Putin's madness turned Romeo and his countrymen's world upside down. There's no normal or right way, I think, to wake up to war. 
uh, there's only this kind of sense of panic and fear. When I woke up on that morning of February 24th, uh, before the the war started and the lead up to it, the, the months uh, leading up to it, there was a real big sense in Ukraine that, you know, this is all overblown. And of course, um, our government at the time was telling us, no, no, the Russians aren't going to invade, um, even when the Americans were saying the opposite. Uh, and obviously, no one wants a war. So there are a lot of very motivated people <laughs> that really wanted to ignore um, the evidence that Russia was building up for an invasion uh, up until the day it happened. Um, and my grandmother was one of those people. And she'd come to Kiev. She usually lives in my hometown of uh, Vinitsa. But she works in Kiev occasionally. And she came to Kiev um, under the, the very strong belief that everything was going to be all right. So <laughs> when I woke up to that news, I had a, I had so much to do. First, of course, was to ensure that all my family and friends managed to get out of the city in time. Um, that included persuading my grandmother, who now had, had no real way to avoid that reality. Though luckily, uh, she was able to get out. All these years, because we always believed that they would come. But you know when it, how real it is, when there's this difference between what you do as a political figure, as a political person, and what you're actually preparing your nation to sacrifice, to defend ourselves. But the war is not over. We are, we are fighting right now. People are dying as we speak. There are so many thoughts running through your head when war becomes a reality and not something that you've read about in the history books or seen, you know, through the eyes of reporters thousands of miles away, um, or at least that was the case to me. On the one hand, yeah, I was terrified of dying to a Russian missile, just a random wasteful death that accomplishes absolutely nothing. But at the same time, there's quite a few layers of pride as well, because you want to do so many things. You want to, to kind of save the world, but at the same time, um, at least I'm very aware that I'm very human and the best way for me to serve my country, uh, I, I decided at least was to, to continue working, to continue working as a journalist. Almost every journalist that I spoke to had, uh, decided to remain in Kiev until basically that was no longer an option. That was the case, um, for myself and, uh, my, kind of journalistic partner, my, my journalistic buddy, Anthony. Um, and we were both staying in Kiev for basically as long as we dared, which our nerves held out for about two days. Things change once you actually hear the booms of air defense systems. At the time, there was no way to tell how effective the Russian siege of Kiev was going to be. So after kind of two days of um, hearing these far-off explosions and they weren't even that far off. They were a couple of dozen kilometers north of us at best. Uh, we just packed up all the stuff that we were going to take and then boarded literally the first train going west. We didn't care where exactly it went. The station was actually shaking because the explosions had gotten uh, close enough. and We didn't look at a schedule or care about um, what train was going where. We just needed to get as far away from Kiev as possible. 
When that invasion happened, Russia and indeed many of the watching world had no idea what would happen next. Putin seemed to believe his so-called special military operation would be a three-day march into the heart of Kyiv to overthrow Zelensky and engulf Ukraine into a new Russian map. The soldiers even packed their parade uniforms. That did not happen. The mood of Ukrainian troops is high. Russia's much vaunted military seems to instill little fear. They will not pass, says an engineer. We have witnessed the bravery and skill of highly motivated, well-drilled Ukrainian forces outthinking and outflanking a lumbering foe, exposing the sham of Putin's autocratic, oligarchic power structure and his corrupt and ineffective military. Yet, despite the crimes done to Ukraine, there is a sense that this country, fighting for freedom and defining resilience, is doing so much to show the world that autocracy doesn't always have to win. There's a joke in uh, that Ukrainians share pretty often social media about how um, Vladimir Putin is the most successful undercover CIA agent in the history of the Cold War. Uh, now, I'm not saying, of course, that Vladimir Putin is a CIA agent. But he has managed to, throughout his reign and his dominion over Russia, turn quite a few of the post-Soviet countries completely against him, uh, lose the loyalty of nearly every Russian speaker in Ukraine, including those um, that would have never imagined calling themselves Ukrainian prior to 2014, um, and further alienate his own people by treating them like literal cannon fodder. Uh, I don't think in a uh, Langley planner's wildest dreams would they, would have they imagined that the Kremlin would make such monumentally stupid decisions um, as it had. And there's no way out for him. Um, starting the war was the end of, at least, at the very least, Putin's regime. There's one area I think that Ukrainians can definitely educate the West on. I think in a lot of Western institutions, this myth of a rules-based international order became paramount. But from the Ukrainian perspective, we always knew this was a lie. Uh, it was a nice motto, a nice slogan, but it didn't exist in actuality when Russia invaded in 2014. There was no enforcement of the uh, Budapest Memorandum. Uh, instead, everyone tried to sweep the, the situation under the rug. And it was easy to see why. We have known for decades that oligarchs from basically the entire former Soviet Union had been buying up Western politicians, properties in Western cities, sending their kids to Western universities. But at the same time, when you would talk to these European diplomats that would come to Ukraine in order to build democratic capacity or whatever um, NGO, international development buzzwords they would string together into a sentence, the Ukrainians are listening to this and thinking, but wait a minute, none of what you're saying corresponds to reality at all. But Europeans act as if this stuff is exclusive to the former Soviet Union. When it's clearly spread everywhere, uh, and hopefully one lesson will be not to be 
so blinded by your own um, liberatory and neoliberal mythmaking that you can excuse the uh, systemic failures of funding genocidal dictators. I mean, I say very hopefully because, as I said, a lot of governments still seem to want to refuse to acknowledge how complicit they've been in all of this. Um, but I, I am hopeful that this will be one lesson that Ukrainians will be able to teach the West. The hope and strength of Ukraine is palpable, but the war is far from over and it's not happening in isolation. It is the most obvious symptom of a shift in the global order. But what are we shifting to? I know just the man to ask. Jason Pack is an analyst and author of the book Libya and the Global Enduring Disorder. For many years now, I've been writing about how the world is in a new historical epic, which I term the global enduring disorder, epitomized by the inability of even well-intentioned nation states and individuals to handle the sheer complexity of the collective action problems we face, from climate change to tax havens to the war in Ukraine, energy prices and inflation. But this global enduring disorder is not new. It predates Trump and Brexit. It wasn't created by Putin. In fact, Putin was able to stay in power only because it pre-existed him. The global enduring disorder is the consequence of the West's supreme victory in the Cold War without desiring to end the Cold War via the creation of new ordering institutions. Why is this? The only thing I can come up with is that Washington Consensus Economics preached that you really didn't need regulation. Regulation would prevent the creative juices of capitalism from getting into new markets and making a buck, and that markets would just sort out everything. I think that was a key miscalculation because we didn't bring the post-Soviet countries seamlessly into the democratic world. Those key years of the 1990s and early 2000s were lost. And in fact, many new centers of disorder were allowed to take root. This pertains to everything, including the economy. Consider that we have these major energy companies who might engage in bribes in Africa, or they might want to drill baby drill to make a profit in the next quarter. And we don't really have a global framework for regulating how they spend their lobbying money in Washington or London. And similarly, a lot of wealth from the non-democratic world is essentially not taxed and placed in offshore tax havens beyond government control and scrutiny and can be used not only to buy super yachts, but to influence electoral processes and drive up the prices of various commodities. We don't have global regulation for what I term hot money. Hot money coming out of the former Soviet space has influenced our elections in the United States and potentially the Brexit referendum as well. So that what's happening there, so corruption and hot money, affects us here. There really isn't here and there anymore. I don't see the 20th century institutions as fit for purpose for these essentially 21st century challenges 
that the enduring disorder presents us with. I'm Gary Gerstel. I'm the Paul Mellon Professor of American History Emeritus at the University of Cambridge. I've published a number of books on American history, the latest of which is The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order, America and the World in the Free Market Era. In 2016, two events happened that I think rocked all of our worlds. One was Brexit, and the other was the election of Donald Trump. And it seemed to me that uh, events of that magnitude signified to me uh, something that was breaking up in the world. And my decision to write this book was to tell the history of that breakup. In order to do that, it took me back to the 1970s and 1980s and the birth of what I call the neoliberal order, which is a, a political order that seeks to release the power of capitalism through free markets. And I tell the story of how that political order triumphed and then its breakup in the decade after the Great Recession of 2008 and 2009. We're starting to see a thread here. At the end of the Cold War, Western powers and their neoliberal structures had triumphed. But it was neoliberalism itself which set the scene for those very powers not to seek to reorder the world, but instead to let unfettered, deregulated markets and international finance dominate. Here's Gary again. An element accelerating this embrace was the fall of the Soviet Union and communism between 1989-1991. Never or almost never had a powerful empire decided to disassemble itself so quickly and so completely. This was a, a stunning moment, but the effects of it were profound in the sense that communism had been capitalism's primary opponent and suddenly the opportunities for capitalism, the erasure and defeat of its most dedicated opponent, helped the hegemony of capitalist beliefs and also caused crises among elements of the left all across the world because the most spectacular effort to build a socialist society had crashed. And related to that, one other factor is the IT revolution burst upon the U.S., Europe, and part of the promise of techno-utopianism was that so much data was to be available now so instantaneously through computing anywhere in the world that one could eliminate market risk in ways in which market risk had never been eliminated. And if you had perfect markets, what need was there for a state to come in and correct market imperfections? And this was a fantasy that gripped a lot of people, including Bill Clinton and his arch enemy, Newt Gingrich, both wanted to build the bridge to tomorrow, both wanted to clear out the impediments to that bridge, and one of the impediments was excessive government regulation. So techno-utopianism, too, furthered the intense embrace in both political parties of core neoliberal beliefs. This techno-utopianism fathered an unwanted child, the modern disinformation age in which authority and trust is fatally damaged. Sitting alongside this extraordinary technological change is a far older issue, energy, and the addiction of the Western world to imported hydrocarbons. Helen Thompson, another Cambridge professor, and her book Disorder tracks the consequences of this energy addiction. To see this clearly, 
it's worth going back to the Suez Crisis. Then the crisis over Suez, a split even within his own party when Britain invaded Egypt. In 1956, Britain, France and Israel sought to seize control militarily of the vital Suez Canal from Arab nationalist Egyptian President Gamal Abdel Nasser and thus free up Middle Eastern oil flows to Europe. But American President Eisenhower ordered his allies to stand down in order to secure America's energy security and seal its global power. The Suez Crisis marked the end of Britain's imperial ambitions in the Middle East. Um, but you see Suez through a sort of lens of energy security rather than kind of imperial domination. The point I wanted to draw out of the Suez Crisis was really that it's both. But at the centre of it, I think, lies the fact that the British were doing what they were supposed to do. They were looking after the access of West European countries or the, the security around the access of West European countries to oil. And the Americans wanted the West European countries to import oil from the Middle East. The Americans didn't want West European countries to be importing oil either from the Soviet Union um, because of the Cold War or from the Western Hemisphere, including the United States itself, um, because the United States was, or American presidents, I should say, were sufficiently worried about the United States' long-term oil security, that they wanted Western Hemisphere oil for the Americans. Um, so the British were supposed to act like an imperial power, um, and that's what Anthony Eden did. But it was extraordinarily inconvenient for Eisenhower, um, both because Eisenhower was up for re-election um, and because it coincided with the Soviet invasion of Hungary. Eisenhower pulled the plug to the extent it was hubris, it was hubris because the British had to learn that the Americans could use American financial power to stop Britain doing what Britain was supposed to do in energy security terms. And it horrified not just the British government and the French government, but it horrified the West German government. I mean, no one was more horrified by what happened in the Suez crisis than Konrad Adenauer, uh, the West German um, chancellor. And out of the West European reaction, not really the British reaction, but particularly the West German, I would say, and the Italian reaction to the Suez crisis came the first decisive turn back to Soviet energy. That, as we know, is hugely consequential today. So in that sense, there's a line that runs from Suez and the British action and failure in um, to the situation that existed um, up to the 23rd of, 3rd of February uh, in terms of the German assumption in particular that a lot of important part of its energy needs were best served by a relationship with Russia, previously the Soviet Union. In later episodes, we'll explore America's interventions in the Middle East in greater detail. But the West's dependence on both Russian and Middle Eastern energy has been a feature of our world since the middle of the 20th century. And it was that dependence, particularly on Saudi Arabia, which would ultimately lead to the undoing of the neoliberal order. In 1991, a huge American-led coalition deployed to the Gulf to protect Saudi Arabia against Saddam Hussein's Iraq. Here's activist and co-writer of the Middle East Crisis Factory, Iyad al-Baghdadi, who you'll hear from later in the season, explaining the significance of this moment. The origin of how Osama bin Laden 
and the early leaders of Al-Qaeda split off and splintered and considered themselves, you know, no longer Saudi, really goes back to uh, 1991 and the responses to the American-led liberation of Kuwait. Bin Laden and his cohort thought that it's an affront to Islam to have foreign parties assist, you know, station in Arabia and assist this war. He actually offered his own brethren in arms who fought in Afghanistan and he said, you know, we will fight, we will liberate Kuwait. And it might be another jihad front. Of course, that did not happen. And uh, that led to his country excommunicating him and him excommunicating his country. Of course, not a total divorce, but the beginning of something like that between the Saudi state and the Saudi religious elements. The 9-11 attack from Osama bin Laden's point of view was a spectacular success uh, because it knocked the most powerful country in the world, a country that thought it had no serious rival. It knocked it off its rocker and it led to what I regard as the worst foreign policy mistake in American history, which is the decision to go to war against Iraq in 2003. Uh, and further compounding the error of that war was uh, George W. Bush's decision to deploy neoliberal principles in the reconstruction of Iraq, uh, much as his father and then Clinton pushed what they called shock therapy for Russia and Eastern Europe in the 1990s. In other words, the only way to, to break the dependence of these societies on states that were not doing them any good was to get rid of those states entirely and turn over everything to private enterprise as quickly and as powerfully as could be done. And of course, the destabilization of the, of the Middle East took the glow off of neoliberal principles because it was clear that it was so manifestly not working. At home, his dreams were as great as for the Middle East. He wanted to help them become homeowners. The bubble burst. The stories that have been told about neoliberalism, that it would lift all boats, that it had within it a capacity for transforming the United States and the global economy. This became impossible to believe. And this is what made this as an order impossible to continue to survive. That then becomes a political crisis. The center can't hold the authority of the neoliberal order, the, the, the ability of its policies to command respect and support throughout the political spectrum vanish and vaporize. The effects of the collapse of the neoliberal order and American interventionism endure to this day. Jason Pack. After the American invasion of Iraq in 2003, the moral supremacy to lead the allies was kind of eviscerated. So when the Arab Spring came along in 2011, Obama said, we need to do the opposite of what Bush did. And Cameron said, I need to do the opposite of what Blair did. They didn't want to have heavy-handed nation building in places like Libya or Syria. So in Libya, without a coordinated reconstruction effort, a vacuum was created where Russia and Turkey and others like the Emirates and Qatar were really the key players in determining Libya's political trajectory. Whereas in Syria, there was a reluctance to get involved at all, despite the humanitarian crisis that was evolving there, same as in Yemen. And by not leading, 
the West has created a situation in which the enduring disorder begets more disorder. These nodes like Libya, Syria are more disordered because we don't coordinate about how to order them. And the more disordered they are, they emit migrants and migrants drive European and American populaces to the right. But by being driven to the right, these neo-populist leaders like Trump and Boris, they disorder the world further because we can't coordinate, we can't solve these collective action challenges like the post-conflict states of Libya and Syria, or in 2014, the Russian annexation of Crimea. And then more disorder in those places emits more migrants and more hot money and more disorder and contagion in the form of misinformation, which further undermines our democracies and then further undermines our leadership's ability to coordinate. So the enduring disorder is a negative feedback loop. So Jason, how do we get out of this spiral? Only now is there a new big idea, which is that, oh, we need to have more state regulation of the unleashed markets. Otherwise, they might give rise to things like oil tyrants like Putin, who fundamentally wish to undercut our democratic liberties and our democratic way of life. So maybe the mid-20th century is going to have the overarching narrative of its politics be a struggle between democratic freedoms and the social contract where the state is strong enough to you know, enforce those regulations, or we're combating a, a, a block which is not unified. It's not like Putin and Xi are unified, but they want to make the world safe for autocracies where they can oppress their own populations and use hot money and undercut international coordination so as to stay in power. So the war in Ukraine has crystallized for many policymakers as well as their constituents that just as, say, the mid-20th century was a struggle of ideas between the capitalist or liberal socialist world and the communist and planned economies. The 21st century may be a struggle for ideas between the democratic world and the non-democratic world. Jason seemed to be describing a world that would be familiar to people from the 19th century. In that age of empires, great powers pursued their interests as weaker states either submitted to occupation or external domination. It's very different from the world of sovereign states, all protected by the international rulebook. I spoke to Dr. Samir Puri, author of the book, The Great Imperial Hangover. Okay, Samir, we're talking in late 2022, and the world, to put it bluntly, is in a pretty tricky spot right now. Have we gone back to the sort of 19th century era of great power politics, of effectively imperial countries able to do what they like, or at least what they can get away with? Certainly some of the, I think, restraining bolts have started to come loose. I think the world we all grew up into was a world in which the USA was the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. Now I'd say the USA is the disputed heavyweight champion of the world. And it's not only the countries that the Americans have deemed to be strategic rivals, obviously China, Iran, Russia, that are now trying to find some sort of wiggle room, some kind of elbow room, and in Russia's case, barging the opposition out of the way to try to claim something of its old empire for itself. 
Uh, but it's also countries like Saudi Arabia and Turkey that are ostensibly, in some respects, either US allies or close partners. Think about countries like Iran, think about countries like Turkey, certainly China uh, and Russia. They all have, at some point in history, uh, a past as an empire builder. So while we may not identify those countries as empires today, I think the pursuit of imperialism uh, can exist without empires. And that's perhaps what we're starting to see emerging much more worryingly around the world today. Yeah, and that's something I want to explore. I was actually reminded, going quite a long way back in history, that in in the 16th century, when Henry VIII argued that he didn't want to be under the control of, of the Catholic Church and the Pope in Rome, he argued that England is an empire. And in that way, we can't accept any authority above ourselves. Clearly, rulers these days operate in very, very different contexts. But it does seem to be the case. There's this increasing tendency for countries to behave as if the only sort of check on their own behavior is their private decision making, as opposed to any kind of wider structure. Something that's really important that's resurfacing now is the fact that so many modern sovereign states are empires in disguise. So when the era of empires ended and the era of sovereign states began, that sort of transition happened in the 20th century. Generally, people think of 1991 and the end of the USSR as sort of the last formal empire coming to pieces. So it's really recent that sort of the empire age and you know, sort of the colonial age, really the final curtain came down. Yeah. But then think about the size of countries as diverse as the USA, Russia, and China, they only got to their sizes because of imperial conquest, and somehow those borders are frozen. And so these instincts, you know, they, they, they may actually just reduce to being embers. They are never extinguished entirely. Yeah. To quite a large degree, we're, we're quite focused on, you know, traditional colonial powers. But there are also what you might call rising empires or new empires. And, and with that in mind, I was quite keen to talk a bit about Saudi Arabia, because in, during the 20th century, while Saudi Arabia was never colonized in any formal sense, its behavior was analogous perhaps to some sort of uh, colonial uh, outpost of the United States in that it relied on the United States for its security guarantees in return for which it effectively operated its sort of economic policy in the interests of the US. Now, there were exceptions, famously the OPEC crisis of 1973, but in general, that has held good. Now, uh, how has that changed, particularly this year? So I have felt with Saudi history, and I'm not an expert in Saudi history at all, but I think we all are if we work in geopolitics by implication, because if you don't know anything about Saudi Arabia, you really don't know how the world turns, I think. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, the, the thing that uh, Ibn Saud, who signed the, the 1915 treaty with the Brits, and his forebears have done is to sort of pick the winning side. And I mean very simply, Pax Britannica gave way to Pax Americana. Yeah. Um, but I think the, the Saudis benefited from siding with the sort of victors of the imperial order in a way that those who sided with the losers and think about the Palestinians, even think about Syria, which sort of sided with the USSR. You can see how in the last 30 years, those countries didn't necessarily thrive. And that's very simply because as the age of empires ended, and it sort of transitioned into an age of informal empire and sort of influence politics, uh, the Saudis, I think, have been past masters at playing this sort of new version of influence politics that sort of steps outside the world of colonies. Yeah. But I suppose with Saudi Arabia, one could argue that 
they, they are also an empire on a slightly different time frame. So perhaps they've reached a stage now where they no longer feel uh, beholden to the US, put very bluntly, when asked to help the West with stabilizing the oil price, which of course Vladimir Putin is using as one of his big economic weapons, the Saudis' response has basically been, sorry, we're, we're not going to do that. I, I wonder whether it's as fundamental as the uh, MBS and, and the House of Saud. I mean, it's an autocracy. I suspect if you're, you're sitting in, in Riyadh, you may actually find it much more comfortable to deal transactionally uh, with leaders who adopt a presidency uh, on the basis of a tradition of monarchical succession or tribal politics or of imperial politics. And I actually think that looking across the Middle East, the fact that there are is a mixture of monarchs and military rulers, they actually fit uh, much more comfortably into this kind of imperial succession political model. And that is, again, another manifestation of the fact that whilst we may think we sort of evolved beyond the age of empires to an age of sovereign states and sort of you know, presidents, prime ministers, parliaments, large parts of the world didn't. And to sort of end that on a sinister note, just imagine that for the sort of 30, 40 years, we felt that liberal democracy had sort of won this great victory globally. Everyone else who didn't believe that was just kind of hiding in plain sight rather than having to, you know, say the right things and wear the right kinds of suits and behave in the right sort of way on election day just to keep people in the in Brussels, in London, in Paris, in Washington and in the UN happy. That may actually be one of the sort of ways in which we can reconcile what we're seeing today is the, the old becoming the new again. Where you've reached there is sort of where I'd, I'd want to go at the last sort of part of this discussion, which is looking forwards. Now, no one has a crystal ball. Uh, or if you did, you probably wouldn't share it with us. But um, what, what, are, what are your sort of prognostications? So in terms of the, the way in which we sort of think about the future, at this quite sort of grand strategic level, sort of influenced by history, we can only, only look at trend lines. Uh, we can't really predict, you know, sort of the whims of, of individual leaders or as someone I heard say recently about Putin, uh, the danger of old men in a hurry. But I think the trend lines are certainly... Uh, moving towards parallel systems. And that means that the West is going to continue being the West. And in some respects, the response to Russia's invasion has reinvigorated parts of the West. It's reinvigorated NATO. It's given it, I think, a more coherent mission. But I think at the same time, we're going to see the G7 eclipsed by the G20. But the G20 is, is not only more representative of where the demographics of the world are and where the wealth of the world is, but it will also start to see, I think, ranking shifts as certain countries jump in and other countries uh, sort of drop out. Countries like Malaysia, Vietnam, Indonesia, certainly jumping up, even in the Philippines in the next 10 to 20 years. And this, I think, is, is a moment of both extraordinary, I think, awakening for countries that were formerly colonies. And it's also a moment of hazard because whenever there's transition, there are possible uh, imperial entrepreneurs out there looking to expand their realms, either with formal conquest or informal uh, sort of you know, arrangements that, that favor them over others. But I think when we look at the immediate future, the Americans are about to lose their monopoly that they seem to have constructed over the phrase, we are but a young country. And I sort of put to, to my American friends, well, if you think you're a young country, how do you feel if you're Indonesia, if you're Malaysia? that you're sort of 70 years old, if you're Singapore, if you're Ukraine and you're 30 years old. I mean, these are the really young countries and their destinies are certainly not fixed. And I just don't think 
and this might alarm some some people, especially in the West, I just don't think the world is going to trend towards this kind of democratic political systems that we recognize. I don't mean in Ukraine, certainly it will in Ukraine, but I think outside of the uh, sort of the, the orbit of the European countries, I think we might start to find a much greater diversity of political systems. So I think those are, those are a few views as to where we may be going. It's a little bit sceptical, uh, but I think we're not heading towards what Francis Fukuyama thought, encouraged us to believe we might be heading towards uh, you know, in 1993 when he wrote his End of History. Maybe it's the end of democratic history. It's certainly the end of uh, the era in which Western countries were, I think, almost without paying proper attention to it, able to export their models and judge other parts of the world as to how accurately their models have been exported. I think that's where we're coming to the end of. your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell, and me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. Before the break, we heard Samir talk about trend lines, a moment of hazard and transition. And speaking of empires, we have Russia, Europe's only remaining colonial power, desperately trying to maintain and expand its imperial possessions. We come inevitably to the world since uh, the 24th of February, and it feels like everything that we're talking about has changed fundamentally. And I suppose I'm interested to understand whether that changes some of the kind of fundamental analysis. Uh, so, you know, just to whip through, European countries apparently are no longer going to depend on Russian gas. Uh, inflation has returned with a vengeance. We are still on a commitment to uh, net zero. Uh, China, we haven't mentioned this aspect of it, but China is actually experiencing what is effectively a political security crisis over zero COVID. And then also COVID did, uh, it seems to me, change the rule book in terms of how Europe behaves over major kind of financial and economic decisions. And that must be relevant because it gave Europe a greater ability to, to take some big calls on energy in the light of the Ukraine crisis. So everything has changed, and, but has everything remained the same or, or are we really in a, a new world now? A wall that throws into question in a really serious way the ability of Russia to hold on to European energy markets has to change actually quite a lot. It also raises the question, I think, about how easy it will be for the European countries really to decisively break with Russia. When we understand that this change is occurring at a moment in which two of the fossil fuel energies, oil and gas, were already, I would say, reaching some kind of like crisis point in terms of supply constraints in relation to demand. Beyond that, the really hard question that we don't still really know what the answer 
is is this how is this war going to end um, and what are the implications for Russia of the terms in which it does end one way in which the world changed profoundly on the 24th of February the day of the invasion was that one of the three most important geopolitical powers in the um, world made a big strategic blunder and that just has to change the world but I think it's very difficult to think through the geopolitical consequences of the war now until it's clear really both how long the war is going to go on and what the likely end game is and what the position of the Biden administration is in terms of whether it really does think that this is an opportunity to weaken Russia permanently. This assumes that America stays a democracy. But modern America now has a pro-authoritarian political leader, I'm talking about Donald Trump, who could change this entire equation. When you think about the Biden presidency, a lot of its foreign policy has been driven by an attempt to repair the damage that Donald Trump produced. I spoke to Brian Klaas, a political scientist and author of Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us. Now, the question then becomes, what happens if in 2024, Biden loses to someone either that is Donald Trump or someone who has Donald Trump's foreign policy views? So for somebody like Vladimir Putin or Xi Jinping, what you want is a disordered world that has disarray in the Western camp. Trump getting elected in 2024 would accomplish that in a day. And if you think about what would have happened on this crucial moment when Russia invaded Ukraine with Donald Trump in that position of power, it's very scary to think about. Once the United States is taking a different tack to, say, Britain, it gives cover to those countries that don't want to be involved. So what you quickly would have, I think, is a splintering. You might have a big push uh, within the EU, for example, to have cohesion. But frankly, it's not enough when you're going against Russia and China. You need to have this incredibly powerful democracy backing what the EU wants to do as well. So if this happens in 2024, I think that you know, the precariousness of the gains foreign policy and a unified Western front and the resurgence of NATO and so on, they're, they're fragile. But what do you see, look, from your perspective, on this kind of big picture of, of the, the health of democracy globally? Yeah, I think, I think it's very tempting to try to look at a series of data points and then construct a story out of them. But what I do think is happening is that it's clear that we have had a decline of democracy globally for basically the last 20 years. I mean, depending on the data set, it's 15, it's 16. But the trend line has been very clear that globally democracy is receding. Now, I can't say where the story is going to go next, but I can say that the framework that we should use to understand the story that's unfolding before us is a battle between democracy and authoritarianism. It's a battle that is going to be, in my opinion, defining the 21st century. And it's a battle where the key players are already quite clear. I mean, you have Russia and China on one side, you have the US, the EU, Japan, a few other players on the other side. And then there's the sort of emerging uh, powers that are waiting in the wings to sort of see what happens or potentially just hedging their bets and trying to get the best of both worlds. But I think that every global problem that we have can be traced back in one way or another to an authoritarian. And I think that's something that we've just avoided talking about for a very long time. There was this, this post-Cold War honeymoon 
in which because, you know, the Soviet Union had been defeated, because there was the stability of the 1990s and so on, a lot of these sort of alliances with odious regimes were swept under the rug as just sort of the price of doing business globally. And I think what's becoming increasingly clear is that when we make alliances with uh, authoritarian movements, we're setting ourselves up for something extremely dangerous. And Germany has been burned by this on the you know natural gas front most recently, but it's a lesson we keep on forgetting. Um, you, the more that you get in bed with these authoritarian forces, the more you end up with serious problems down the line. So I suspect that the way that this will be framed in global politics in the years ahead will be not about a sort of cold war of ideology, but a sort of similar divide around political regime type. And I think that's what we're seeing in, in 2022 as we think about the war between Russia and Ukraine. Brian reminds us of something important about the Cold War. For many in the Global South, Vietnam, Angola, Central America, it was a hot war. The Global North just exported its wars to the South. And in this age of disorder, a similar process is underway. In later episodes, we'll explore the Sahel region of Africa. Countries such as Mali and Burkina Faso have experienced multiple coups and violence in recent years. These reflect an ongoing power struggle between elements close to the former colonial power France and those supported by the Russian state through its proxy mercenary force, the Wagner Group. But even in the ruins of the rules-based order, there remain values which link people. And in the end, true democracy clearly mitigates the oppressive tendencies of autocracies. All right, well, my name is Frida Gittes. I have covered many, many stories over many, many years. Uh, I have worked in about 60 countries. And uh, what I think is that we are at, at a potential pivot point in, in history. Uh, you know, the last uh, couple of decades, we've seen democracy losing ground to autocracy. And there's been this, this notion that maybe democracy is not the best system. That has been it, it's been questioned more openly, uh, even within democracies. And I remember in a long time, there was this, this myth that, that Putin is some kind of a genius. Uh, China's economy had been growing by leaps and bounds. Uh, so the other good reminder uh, at a time like this is not just that democracy can work well, but that, but that autocracies work so badly. You know, we need to look at what's happening in, in Ukraine and in Russia, uh, what, what Russia has done to Ukraine and what it's done to itself. Uh, and what's happening in, in Iran, you know, these, these autocracies, these, these, these dictatorships do not work well. You know, they're, you know, I was thinking about, uh, about China the other day, about how in the early days of the pandemic, we thought China was going to be the most successful country in fighting the pandemic because they, this was one, one occasion when, when, they, when having a strong hand would actually help the government. But it's been a disaster because they made decisions uh, with an eye towards protecting the, the regime. So they didn't get the vaccines that they needed. Uh, and, you know, everybody else is moving on and China and China can't. So uh, I think what's happening now is that there's been two of the truly tyrannical regimes, two, two regimes that are doing really terrible things to their people, I Iran and, and Russia, uh, are being exposed. And they're not just being exposed. They are facing very, very strong pushback. You know, Russia did not expect, Putin did not expect to have this kind of a reaction from, from Ukraine. Uh, Iran wasn't expecting this uprising. 
But it is a reminder that in dictatorships, the people have a very hard time expressing their views and turning their views into into policy. Uh, it is also a reminder that uh, that dictatorships can do crazy, crazy things. And furthermore, it's a reminder that once a dictatorship, once an autocrat takes power, they can be very, very difficult to dislodge. You know, you have the the uh, Iranian regime has been in power since 1979. Uh, Putin has been president basically since 2000 with a, that brief period when he was prime minister, but was still in control of the country. Uh, you know, in China, we also have, I mean, these, these, these uh, dictatorships, we have Nicaragua, you know, these, these autocrats uh, and, the, and autocratic regimes once they take power, they are very, very hard to, to remove. So that's a good warning to, uh, to people in countries that are toying with the idea of, of uh, handing power to people with autocratic tendencies, that once you start it, it's very, very difficult to change your mind about it. But let's give the last word to Romeo, talking from war-torn Ukraine. I think the bigger lesson here that we as Ukrainians have learned is that we are not worse than the West. We are a lot more resourceful, a lot braver, um, and a lot kinder than maybe we even thought. There has been, and it still continues to be, such an explosion of community spirit. People scrounging together mutual aid networks to fund uh, military units with modern equipment to gather money for satellite networks and drones in the millions. And Ukraine is not a rich country. We're talking about donations from people whose salaries on a good month might reach for $500 a month. Uh, and that is no small ask. Given the kind of inherent cynicism of the Ukrainian psyche, typically after the experience of uh, the Soviet Union and the kind of 30 years of nearly uninterrupted corruption since then, um, suddenly it turns out that, you know, we are willing to help each other quite significantly. Uh, and again, there's no, you know, aid, international aid organization that stepped in or the government stepping in. These were, these are just the efforts of determined Ukrainians. And I think that's the, perhaps one of the biggest things that we've learned, thanks to, <laughs> I say thanks to, due to Putin's war against us. And after the war, I'm finally hoping uh, that we will have kind of a democratic explosion, basically. I think this still this feeling of community, of people willing to help complete strangers out on little more than a social media post, I think people are not going to forget that feeling. And I think people are going to take ownership of their future. Despite even the war, Ukrainians are pretty fiercely optimistic about the future. Everyone constantly talks about their plans. Uh, whatever it is, people believe in a future, I think maybe for the first time um, in decades.
We're in the age of chaos. As we like to say in this series, everything is connected. And one of the key links here is the collapse of US democracy. From being the archetype of democratic power, the entire US electoral system seems to be in critical condition. In fact, it's not at all clear that the insurrectionist Republican Party is inside the democratic fold anymore. Join me next time for Doomsday Watch. Is America still a democracy? This egregious abuse of the law is going to produce a backlash, the likes of which nobody has ever seen. If you want to know the answer to that question and hear the next episode right now, subscribe to Patreon. For early access, bonus content and much more besides, search Patreon Doomsday Watch before it's too late. Doomsday Watch was written and presented by Arthur Snell and produced by Robin Lieburn with assistant production from me, Jacob Archibald. Theme tune and original music is by Paul Hartnell. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. Doomsday Watch is a Podmasters production. <laughs>